If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm chapter 29. Psalm chapter 29. As we go to God's Word, let's return to Him in prayer and ask for His aid and assistance. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we have just sung, as we have just prayed, We ask, Father, that you would speak to us. Indeed, Father, as we sang, your word are words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. Oh, Father, the cry of our hearts for many may be, I believe, help my unbelief. And so, Father, would you be pleased to open our ears to hear your word, open our eyes to see your word, open our minds to know our hearts to embrace, and may our whole being, our hands and feet be strengthened to live our lives according to your word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're on week 29 of a series that started a few uh, years ago in the summertime. Seeing all of life as worship through the Psalms. Now, these Psalms, as we've been saying, are songs and prayers offered to God by Israel. It's the hymn and the prayer book of Israel, of the church. Before there was the Trinity hymnal, before there was hymns modern and ancient, there was the book of Psalms. Actually, 150 songs uh, divided into five books. These Psalms are at once familiar. And foreign. They were written over 1,200 years ago, over a a course of 1,200 years, 12 centuries from beginning around 1500 BC through the third century BC. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, referred to the Psalms as a little Bible, as a Bible in miniature. And as we go through the series, we will see that more and more. These 150 songs are diverse and yet they're unified because they're centered on the one true and living God. I'd like to draw your attention to the something to think about quote that's on page five. It starts out, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And it ends by saying, always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. And we get a right view, a right understanding of who God is as He's revealed Himself to be in His Word. And in particular, we will see this in the Psalms. We will see that the diverse excellencies of God as presented in the Psalms. You'll notice as you look at these, it's, it's not prose, it's poetry. And as poetry, as I told the men at Fairhaven Rescue Mission um, last fr- this past Friday night as we looked at Psalm 1, with poetry it's hard to read it fast. You've got to slow down and you've got to engage your mind. You've got to think. And as we read the Psalms with faith, we're not just informed, we're not just gaining knowledge. By God's grace, by His Spirit, we are being changed We're not going to be the same people we were before. Now the church, I believe, doesn't need exclusive psalmody. In other words, 
We don't just sing psalms, but we need to include the psalms as a part of our worship because the psalms help promote the worship of the church. As we said last week, it helps miserable Christians sing, sorrowful, discouraged Christians sing and know that God hears, God listens. It promotes not only the corporate worship of the church, but all of life worship. Worship that is biblically grounded and guided, God-focused, Christ-centered, and Spirit-enabled. Now here we are at the beginning of the week. Have you thought about that? Sunday, the Lord's Day, is the start of the new week. I want you to look at the dashboard of your life right now. Are you on empty? Good news. The Psalms can help refuel you. Are you lost? The Psalms can help you return. There's that GPS, as it were, in the Psalms. Are you scattered? Are you all over the map in your thoughts, your words, maybe your actions. Well, the Psalms can help bring focus to scattered thoughts. We've been saying that corporate worship on the Lord's Day reorients us and realigns us. What do I mean? Worship as reorientation in the case of false gods. It helps take our eyes off of the idols that we make or create and return them to the true God, but not only that is worship helps to realign us from false worship of the true God because God in His Word has revealed how He wants to be worshipped. I mean, think about the arrogance of coming before God with our own ideas of what pleases Him. God has let us know in His Word what pleases Him. Here in the Psalms, we're going to get more and more an idea and understanding of what pleases the Lord. The Psalms are a precious treasure for the church. We neglect them to our detriment and we pay attention to them to our great benefit in growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Now I'm not going to read the whole quote from last week, but just a part of the quote from John Calvin in his introduction to the Psalms. He says this, I've been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. In other words, whatever may serve to encourage us when we are about to pray to God is taught in this book. And of course, Calvin went on to say about all the various emotions, high and low and in between, that we can come before the Lord with. But he goes on to say this, there is no other book in which we are more perfectly taught the right manner of praising God. You see, the Psalms are a great help for both prayer, that's asking from God, as well as praise, that is giving to God. The Psalms are, as he said, an anatomy of the soul, opens us up to help us see what's on the inside. It gives us language. We might say then the Psalms are like medicine for the soul that can close us up and heal us. But we also can say rightly that the Psalms give us words to speak when we desire to praise God. It gives us a vocabulary, and we will see that, I believe, today, because Psalm 29 is a psalm of praise. 
It's unlike every previous psalm that we've already looked at. It's entirely of praise to God. I think that Psalm 29 could be an answer to, God, to David's dread of God being silent that he expressed in Psalm 28. To be sure, last week we saw David receive the assurance of God's hearing, of his answer. And yet here this very next psalm is all about the voice of the Lord. It's entirely of praise to God. It's, as one commentator said, it's pure praise. And you'll notice it's also pure poetry. And Hebrew poetry has a couple of characteristics. It's repetition and parallelism, and you'll see it. In 11 verses, you have the Lord 18 times. You have the voice of the Lord seven times. And you see in the beginning and the end, parallelism and repetition. It's a nature of psalm. The wonders of creation. In, in Psalm 8 is the vastness of the night sky. In Psalm 19, the sun. And here, the storm. One commentator, the late Jack Mateer, says this, It is best simply to let the wonder and awesomeness of this psalm sweep and swirl around us until we are so possessed in spirit by the majesty of the Lord that we too cry, glory. And so we're going to spend the next few minutes letting this psalm sweep and swirl around us. Join with me now as I read Psalm 29, a psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The, glory, the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in His temple all cry, Glory! The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. Well, let's unpack and explore this psalm of praise, which, as I believe we'll see, acts almost like an order of worship. It begins first with a call to worship. We see this in the first two verses. Now, who is being addressed? Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. There's been some debate through the years and the scholarship of this, but it's most likely the heavenly beings are the angels. They are literally the sons of God, sons of a supreme power, but they 
the angels themselves, the beings in heaven must acknowledge the Lord's glory. And we see support for that in the book of Job and in Psalm 89. And we see it also in Isaiah 6. And that vision that Isaiah the prophet had of the Lord's holiness and His glory. The seraphim were in the Lord's presence. Holy, 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 they say. So who is being addressed the inhabitants of heaven here, the angels, angelic beings. And what, what are they called to do to ascribe? Three times, well, ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. But what is that? To acknowledge God's supreme worth in their minds. To declare the greatness of God. To declare what they know to be true about God. That He and He alone is great They're called to ascribe to the Lord, to declare His greatness, but also notice how those three ascribes are summed up at the end of verse 2. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. To bow down before Him. To subordinate their wills and minds to His. To bow in obedience to Him with a humble attitude of a servant. Calling the angels to worship. Remember, that's our purpose as a church. Not to call the angels to worship, but if the angels are called to worship, how much more the lesser created beings that are here on earth, humans, calling people to worship. As we say, to be human is to worship. Who or what are you worshiping? Because you see, there is a danger of worshiping false gods. Remember that one angel did fall and took with him a host of others because he, as it were, looked in the mirror and worshiped himself and not the living and true God. And that's a danger we see, mysterious as it is, but it's a realistic, in-your-face danger for us. You see, the call to worship is not optional. It's a command. We are called to worship the living and true God. So our psalm opens up with this call to worship of the, to the heavenly beings. And following this short introduction, the call to worship, the psalmist David spends the majority of his poem, his song, extolling the power of God through the image of a storm which leads to the praise of God. So verses 3 through 9, the wonder of God in the storm leads to the praise of God. I want us to start actually at the end of this section. Look at how verse 9 ends. You've already had the voice of the Lord seven times and it ends with this statement. And in His temple all cry glory. It's the climax to that description of, of the storm. It's It's the answering cry. You see, the praise that has begun in heaven is echoed now by people on earth, the people of God, who have seen the glory of God revealed in the storm. Now, to many people, the storm is is just simply awesome, or it's a meaningless display of power. But those who know the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, 
those who know the Lord and who are in His presence in the temple see it not just as a mere storm, but as His glory. He, in all His glory, is there in the storm. So let's back up and look at the storm. I want us to notice the movement of the storm. Now, this morning at 7 a.m., as I often do, not always, but often, I, I turn on the television. And the reason why is I want to see what's going on in the nation and world in case there's something that needs to be addressed here. After all, we are in the world. And what was the leading story at 7 a.m.? Hurricane, now Tropical Storm Barry, coming in from the Gulf of Mexico, coming over the coast of Louisiana inland. Those of you that have been to the beach on the east coast of the United States as well know, and the Gulf Coast, the storm starts in the ocean and it comes over land. And that's really what we have here. In verses 3 and 4, the storm gathers power out in the north over the Mediterranean Sea. And in verses 5 through 7, the storm strikes a violent sweep down Canaan, down the land of Israel. And in verses 8 and 9, the storm passes away over the desert in the south. And you see some place markers, uh, Lebanon and Kadesh and Syrian, all places and, and, and names that, that God's people here whom Dave is writing for, David is writing for would, would know. So the movement of the storm starts in the sea and it comes over land and down land and then it passes away over the desert. Now the image of the storm, you, you see it, you hear it, it's seven times the voice of the Lord. You see, this violent storm is a, a theophany or an expression of, of the Lord displaying His majesty and His power. It's to see the invisible God in the storm. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature. Now, stop right there. How do we see God's eternal power and His divine nature? Well, listen to how Paul continues. Have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So here... David is using the image of a storm, a storm that he probably witnessed over and over again to speak of God's invisible attributes. And the whole land from end to end is dominated, not just by the storm, but again by what the storm symbolizes, the voice of the Lord. The voice of of the Lord. Now, how many of you all have been up to Tylersville Road, Westchester, up I-75? You know what's up there? The Voice of America Park. The Voice of America Museum. If you haven't been there, I haven't been there. I need to go. I think it would be a great thing to see. The Voice of America. Here's its mission. Since its creation in 1942, Voice of America has been committed to providing comprehensive coverage of the news and telling audiences the truth. 
That's the voice of America. But here is the voice of God, as it were. The voice of God that is truth. That presents truth. That people cannot escape from its truth. You see, God's power is particularly active, as we will talk about in a moment, in His voice. Because what God's voice says, or what God's Word says, God does. And then there's the power of the storm. If you'll notice the language, thunder and flames and breaking and making things happen like skipping like a calf and shaking, stripping the forest bare. It's the power of the storm that's being emphasized. That's the chief concern of David, the power of God's voice. Think with me about what Scripture says about God's voice. The power of His voice in creation. And God said, let there be, and there was. There's God's power as He speaks in grace. God's Word, His voice draws sinners to Himself through His Word, by His Spirit. God's voice is active in creation. God's voice is active in new creation, in regeneration. I think it was Spurgeon that said, just as God could easily break the cedars of Lebanon that were used to build the temple in Jerusalem, think about how He breaks the obstinacy, the stubbornness, the hard-heartedness of rebels. And brings them to himself. And then finally there's the power of the voice of God in judgment. As we will see God pronounces judgment in this reference to the flood in a moment. The power of God in the storm of life. David is not sentimental. He's not saying we are nearer to God's heart in the garden. We are nearer to God's heart and His purpose in the easy times. No, He's saying we are nearer to God's heart in, as it were, the hurricane. You all know that, don't you? When life is easy, when there's no wind, no rain, who do we fall back to trust on? ourselves. But when we're in the storm, when the power of the storm cannot be avoided, we turn to the Lord. We are nearer His heart, as it were, in a hurricane. Now come back to this verse 9 at the end. In His temple all cry glory. Earlier we said all cry glory, but where are they? They're in His temple. Again, the, the, the description of the storm starts with glory in verse 3 and it ends with glory in verse 9. To many people a storm is a storm, but to those whom the Lord has been pleased to reveal Himself, it's one aspect of His glory, His power, His majesty, His strength. Now it would be natural to think of the temple in Jerusalem. That all in His temple... In Jerusalem, cry glory. And when this psalm was used in the worship there, absolutely. But when you think about 
The temple not being just a building, but simply where God dwells. Where God dwells with His people. It's with His people. It's with the church. A few weeks ago, I wasn't here. And we sang, from what I understand, Praise to the Lord the Almighty, the King of creation. O my soul, praise Him, for He is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, now to His temple draw near. Join me in glad adoration. All cry glory. And where is the glory of God most acknowledged, most celebrated? In His church, among His people. I hope the the swirl of this psalm is bringing you to the point of recognizing who God is and who we are. His power compared to our weakness and frailty. And yet, the response of God's people then and now are glory. Glory. I mean, one application taking away uh, from here is just that we ought to stand in all of the majesty of God and, and give Him the glory that is due His name. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, after opening with a call to worship and describing the voice of the Lord through the picture of a storm, David concludes this worship service just like a worship service should conclude, with a benediction. And we see that in verses 10 and 11. I want to look real briefly at two aspects of a benediction. First, a benediction is a good word, and here it's a word about the sovereignty of God. Look with me at verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. The storm has passed, but God remains as the enthroned king over the flood. Now, when God's people heard the flood, they could not help but go back to Genesis 6 through 9, because this is the only other place that the flood is used like that here in the Old Testament. The flood, the flood which was what? Judgment. Judgment. Here is a statement of faith in the eternal sovereignty of God. The the earth has been shaken. God sits enthroned over the waters, over the flood. He is the judge. And God is not moved. You see, God's power is revealed not as some kind of naked force. Not like the force that is with you. But rather as an instrument of His judgment and salvation. You see, it's a statement of faith in the justice of God as He will one day fully and finally destroy the wicked and preserve His people. Justice will be served. And this reference to the flood reminds God's people that the wicked were destroyed and the one righteous man and his family were preserved. So not only is the benediction a good word, but it's also a blessing. A blessing for the people of God. You see, God's people live in a world that's under judgment, but by His strength and with His blessing, God's people have peace. 
You see, the last word not only in the English but in the Hebrew is peace, is shalom, wholeness, wellness, fullness. It's life the way it's supposed to be. The Lord bless His people with peace. Now earlier, you heard me mention that there's a movement in this psalm. From the Mediterranean Sea to the north of Israel, down the coast interior, and off into the deserts in the south. Well, there's another movement. Have you seen it yet? The movement from heaven where praise is given to God by His angels to earth where peace is given by God to His people. Does this sound familiar? Praise in heaven and peace on earth. Let me remind you of Luke 2.14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, you know it, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. You see, Psalm 29 leans forward and points to the coming, not only to the peace of God in Jesus Christ, but also to the glory of God, not so much in the storm, but in the flesh. Remember, John says early in his gospel, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I wonder if when the shepherds heard that announcement, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, among those whom the Lord favors, I wonder if they said, Aha! Psalm 29. It's where it begins. It's where it ends. And in the middle is God's power. And God displays, of course, His power through His Son. You see, the order of worship here draws our attention to the glory of God in Christ. Jesus Christ, He Himself is our peace. The banner to the left, if we need a reminder, here it is. He Himself is our peace. Peace has arrived. Why? Because grace has appeared. Peace with God and peace with one another. Now, how is He our peace? It's a good question to ask. You know, it's one thing to say He Himself is our peace, to believe it, absolutely. But why and how? You see, the New Testament makes it clear what this part of the Old Testament only saw in part. That the Son of God is our peace because He takes what we deserve that is the curse of the wrath of God. And He gives to us what we don't deserve. The blessing of the peace of God. I want, us to take, I want to take us back for a moment to a minor prophet. Now kids, why are the minor prophets minor? Do you all remember? Is it because they're not important? No, no. It's because they're short, right? It's easier to read a minor prophet than a major prophet. Well, I want to take our minds back to 
Jonah. Jonah. In Jonah 3.15, here's what we read. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Now the runaway prophet Jonah points forward to Jesus, the prophet, the Word of God in the flesh, who didn't run away from where he was called to go. You see, Jonah was thrown into the sea, the raging sea, to save the ship and the sailors. Jesus on the cross was thrown into the raging sea of God's wrath in order to save all of those who trust in Him. And as it pertains to the great flood of the judgment of God, Jesus really is the ark of safety and survival. Jesus is the ark of salvation. You see, the voice of the Lord, 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 six, seven, seven. It's Jesus. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, the author to the Hebrews writes. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe, get this, by the word of His power. You see, the mission of the Voice of America was to present the news and to tell the truth, right? Well, the mission of the Voice of the Lord, the Word of the Lord, is to announce the news and to tell the truth, to proclaim the Gospel. And my friends, the Voice of the Lord is most clearly heard in Jesus. Because you see, Jesus has spoken and He still speaks. He Himself is our peace who makes peace. And we read a few verses later in Ephesians 2, And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So my friends, the question today is this. Jesus is still preaching peace. Have you heard Him? Are you listening? You see, we can come up with any number of ways to try to get peace on our terms. But Jesus says that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by Him, through Him. He Himself, and it's emphasized, He Himself and there is no other, is our peace. I wish we could sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, because Charles Wesley was right in 1739 when he said this, He speaks, and listening to His voice, new life the dead receive.
Think with me again about the image of this storm. The power of God. Think with me about the fact that even though the storm is powerful, it's directed and under control by God as the disciples found out. Who is this that the wind and the waves listen to? Here's what Jesus says in the midst of a world where storms are raging out there, but if you are honest, there may be a storm raging in your heart right now. Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And he says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, my friends, the Lord blesses His people with peace. Peace that's obtained by Jesus and peace that's given by Him. For all of you restless hearts out there, find your rest and peace in Him. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that we don't have just the Gospels to tell us about our Lord and Savior. We have the entirety of Your Your Word. And we thank You, Father, that Psalm 29, where there is glory in the highest given to You, and yet on earth there is peace given to man. We thank You, Father, that this helps us understand and appreciate the person and work of Jesus. Oh, Father, may Your peace rest upon those whom You favor. And Father, Your Word is clear. You favor the ones who humble themselves before You, acknowledge their sin, and cry out to You for mercy. So, Father, may that be true for us today. That we would humble ourselves before your majesty and strength and power and holiness. We would acknowledge our sin and that you would hear our cry for mercy. We thank you, Father, for the peace that you freely give in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.